Welcome to Do Theology, where we keep doctrine in its place. I'm Jeremy in Utah. And I am Ken in Indiana. Today we have for you an interview with Elisa Childers, a former band member of the Christian band Zoe Girl, who is now an apologist. She has her own YouTube channel where she walks through matters mainly pertaining to progressive Christianity, a liberal manifestation of what they call Christianity. But of course, we would say those violate primary doctrines. That's not Christianity at all. So we talk to Elisa uh, through these issues. We, we ask her questions regarding the progressive Christian movement, and she offers great insights as to how we can address these issues as we're going to be dealing with more and more quote-unquote, liberal Christians in our churches. She's the author of the book Another Gospel, uh, which you can pick up. It's a very easy read, and it's an educational read for you, too. Uh, We hope you enjoy the conversation. Neither Bethel nor Hillsong meet the biblical definition of a true church. Did you know that Jesus was born again? Is his view heretical? If it isn't, then there's no such thing as heresy. It's not just a black and white issue. There's an issue, there's a question of moderation and how damaging and how harmful things are. Not every act of divine revelation is equal in authority. Angelic forces, angelic reinforcement. I mean, it's, it's hard to even respond to that, isn't it? It's, it's mind-numbing, it's blasphemous. When the apostles use the word atonement, they do not depict an angry God. It's cryptic. It's watered down. It has nothing to do with the judicial aspect of the Christian gospel. The most important of all doctrines is that the Bible is the word of God. They have different ideas than you do. You don't have to automatically kick them out of the kingdom. Our guest today is one of the clearest voices shedding light on the claims of progressive Christianity in today's rapidly changing religious landscape. She is the author of Another Gospel, A Lifelong Christian Seeks Truth in Response to Progressive Christianity. She also blogs and hosts a podcast that tackles these issues, and you can find them at elisachilders.com. It's our pleasure to welcome Elisa Childers to the podcast today. Hi, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Lisa, you've developed an influential Christian presence on YouTube as you seek to equip Christians to defend the faith. Would you mind sharing just with our listeners a little bit about your story, about how you got to this point in your life? Yeah, it's it's a pretty unlikely story because most of my life I was a musician, a very artistic family, you know, spent a better part of a decade as a part of the CCM group Zoe Girl. Some of your listeners may remember Zoe Girl. And I never dreamed that I would end up with a YouTube channel or apologetics ministry or anything like that. So basically how that happened, and I'll kind of give you the the general flyover, and then if you want to drill down on any of the details, we can do that. But essentially, I grew up in a Christian home with great Christian parents. They, they gave me the gospel. They modeled a very genuine Christianity in front of me. So what I mean by that is they weren't hypocrites. They weren't perfect, but they weren't hypocrites. They um, regularly read and studied their Bibles with us and in front of us. Um, would always be quick to repent if if they had sinned, and just just modeling that that genuine faith. And as far as doing just amazing acts of service for the poor, I grew up doing all of that stuff. And so I, I had a basically pretty good experience with Christianity. Uh, I loved Jesus, loved the Bible as far back as I can remember. I've just always known the Bible was the Word of God, and that Jesus was my Savior. And so I never really doubted 
my faith. And I think part of that is because I just didn't have a reason to. I had a pretty good experience with Christianity growing up. And so it really wasn't until after Zoe Girl came off the road, uh, we had toured, basically our hearts were to share the gospel with young girls and give them courage and boldness to speak the truth about Jesus on their public school campuses and with their friends. And that was just a a great experience. Uh, But after we came off the road, uh, I was invited to sing at a local church uh, here in the Nashville area. And uh, when my husband and I went to this church, we just connected immediately with the pastor and with the people. And we started actually attending this church because we hadn't really found that home church. We had visited a lot of places, but just hadn't found that home church. But we just felt like we were home with this place. And so after about eight months, the pastor invited me to be a part of a smaller study group. And he compared it to seminary. He said, if you go through this four-year class, you'll come out on the other side with a seminary level education. And that sounded really exciting to me because although I had read the Bible my whole life and loved Jesus my whole life. I'd never really studied the intellectual side of my faith. I hadn't, I hadn't, I never was taught proper hermeneutics or uh, systematic theology, anything like that. And so it sounded really exciting. Uh, But in one of the first classes, he actually revealed to this smaller group that he was actually an agnostic. And so the class that I lasted about four months in the class, but it was basically four months of him walking the class through his deconstruction. So there was lots of skeptical claims made against everything I'd ever believed about God and Jesus and the Bible. Um, So intellectually, he was very smart, very well-spoken, very articulate. He had convinced me intellectually that what I believed was false, but in my heart, I still knew it was true. So it was just like this torment, this place to be in of torment. And so I just cried out to God one night and asked him to to send me a lifeboat because I felt like I was drowning with huge waves of doubt just crashing over my head. And then through a series of events, uh, the Lord used apologetics to rebuild my faith and uh, helped me to see that the core gospel that I had believed my whole life was true. And there was really good evidence to support uh, all of that and the reliability of the Bible. And and so um, after several years of studying that, and I was pretty settled in my own faith, uh, the Lord led me to start a blog. So in 2016, I started a blog. And then from there, the podcast and the YouTube channel, and then came the book. And so that's kind of my unexpected journey mm-hmm. from music to apologetics. <laughs> the pastor who was sharing his deconstruction uh, in the class, was was any of that coming through on Sunday mornings in his teaching from up front? Or was this like a different man backstage than what you would find up on the stage on Sunday morning? That's a great question. And I perceived it to be two completely different people. The sermons that he was preaching on Sunday morning, he preached more scripture than I'd almost ever heard a pastor use in a sermon. Uh, His insights were so rich. And he was a master at using language kind of with two different meanings. And I realized that now. So he would he would teach something that he knew that if you came from a really gospel, biblically centered worldview, you would interpret his words through that filter, but you could also interpret his words through a, a, a 
filter of somebody who's deconstructing or somebody that doesn't believe the Bible is actually the word of God. Uh, I didn't know, I didn't really understand that then, but I have been curious. I've, I've thought about, I wonder now with all the study I've done now, if I sat in the pews today, if I would pick up on a lot more, I suspect that I would. But at the time, I didn't. I, I The sermons seemed very biblical to me, uh, very orthodox, very historically Christian. And, um, but, but it, you know, behind the scenes on this, this class, it was like everything else was different. And he even said that to the class, you know, he said, my beliefs have changed. I don't know when, how, or if to let the rest of the church body know or how to go about that. And he, he would talk about that. So I know that there was a struggle going on inside of him in regards to that as well. Were you finding any other people in that class, in that church who were seeing or feeling the same concerns as you were? I mean, did you have any kind of uh, unity in that way where you could talk to somebody and say, um, this is really bad? <laughs> or or did it seem like everybody was just following along? Yeah, not, yeah, I didn't really have that because, um, you know, the couple of people that I kind of mentioned something to that weren't a part of the class, they, they had a really hard time believing that that what he was saying was, I mean, even I did. I remember thinking, is he, is this just some big kind of, persuasive ploy to teach us how to spot false doctrine or something. It was just so hard to reconcile the man that we saw on Sunday and the man that we were meeting in this, in this midweek class. And so um, I didn't talk to very many people outside the class about it and everyone else in the class seemed to be just going along with it. So it was very lonely and it was very difficult. I I think that um, looking back, you know, I was, I was really, really bothered and really disturbed by a lot of the stuff we were talking about, but uh, I, I seemed to be the only one, at least as far as I remember and, and could perceive. It's so, one of the things that's interesting to me about that is, sadly, you know, that story is not necessarily fully unique with, with lots of pastors right. that are in similar situations, and obviously only God knows the heart of man. But what do you think motivates some of these pastors to remain in a position where they've they've clearly changed something about their mindset, uh, or even even some pastors that have come out to congregations and openly said, "Oh yes, I'm actually an atheist or I'm agnostic." Why mm-hmm. do you think they are still motivated to stay in that position and not change their career or do something? Yeah, I think that 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 can be so different depending on each different person. I know with this pastor. Uh, he had sort of used Brian McLaren as as his guide. So if, if anyone's unfamiliar, Brian McLaren was one of the founders of the emergent movement, which preceded the progressive Christian movement. Um, still a really relevant voice in that in that movement. But he essentially went from I guess what you would call run-of-the-mill evangelical to progressive, but he did it very slowly. And then there came a point in time when he announced to his church, look, my beliefs have changed. I need to be upfront about it. And it kind of split his church. And so I remember the pastor sort of bringing that up and saying, should I just do that? Should I just let the people know? Um, But I I think in a more broad sense, one of the reasons that progressive Christians and particularly progressive Christian leaders, uh, change their beliefs, but then still want to hold on to this pastoral role or this this title of Christian, is because I think there are a lot of misconceptions about progressive Christians. So a lot of evangelicals think progressive Christians are just trying to be hip and cool, they, you know, or something. And I'm sure there's a lot of that going on. There's a lot of that in all kinds of different streams. But the, the thought leaders, the ones who are 
writing the books and leading the movement with their podcasts and their blog blog posts and things, um, they're very, very committed to the idea that the evangelical paradigm is wrong. And so they'll come with maybe what we might consider to be legitimate critiques. I mean, evangelical culture has gone wonky um, with different things here and there. And I think we would probably agree with some of that. But the problem is, is that with progressive Christianity, that is so tightly tied in with the gospel. And what I mean by that is, let's say you have uh, an example of legitimate spiritual or even sexual abuse in an evangelical church. Uh, We've seen some of these scandals come out. We know that that happens. Um, Where in progressive Christianity, that's tied in directly with the gospel. They would view the abuse that somebody went through as a direct result of gospel teaching. So they'll refer to substitutionary atonement as being an abusive doctrine. So this is the to, to believe that God the Father required the blood sacrifice of his only son. Um, Richard Rohr says that's that's a toxic view of God. And if you believe that, you're actually in need of, of deep emotional healing. And so you can see how all of these things get tied together, whereas you and I, uh, I would assume, would, would look at that abuse and say that's wrong. And the gospel actually has a lot to say about that. And in the gospel's the cure for that. That's gonna, that's what's going to bring healing to the victims. It's going to expose the sin of the abusers and call them to repentance and, and, and all that sort of thing. But in the progressive world, all of that gets sort of tossed out with this whole new paradigm that they truly believe is more spiritually mature, more healthy, more enlightened. Um, and so, and so I think that there's this deep ideological commitment uh, to progressive Christianity that they're genuinely trying to redeem Christianity. I think they think we're the ones who have gotten it wrong and we're the ones who need the correction. There's a few things that strike me as interesting about uh, some of the things that you just said. And one of those is when you were talking about Brian McLaren and his role in the emergent church movement years ago, and I remember having a conversation with someone in Bible college one day who said, no, the emergent church is dead. Mm. And yet we find that some of the same leaders who are speaking up and are a part of this progressive Christianity, these are some of the same individuals that were championing the emergent church movement from 15, 20, 25 years ago. So and that's something I've not heard a lot of people talk about is that connection between the emergent yeah. church movement and the progressive church movement is can you uh, shed more light on that or talk about that a little bit more? Yes. So when I was studying progressive Christianity, I took a couple years, read all the books I could read in that amount of time, listened to the podcasts, read the blog posts, and while I was doing that research, I would see these tweets come down from major evangelical leaders, real conservative, historically orthodox, you know, believers saying, oh, remember the emergent church? That was like a blip on the radar and almost laughing about how it just fizzled out and went away. And I was so confused by that because I'm like, it didn't fizzle at all. And so clarity on that came for me when I read a blog post by Brian McLaren. He wrote it in 2012. And essentially in the blog post, he said, hey, you know, the evangelical gatekeepers successfully pushed the emergent church out of, you know, they, they did a good job keeping those guardrails up I, and pushed it out. He's like, but we didn't go away. We didn't just, okay. You know, when, of course, everybody remembers when John Piper famously tweeted farewell, Rob Bell, when Rob Bell wrote his book, Love Wins, you know, well, Rob Bell didn't just go away and say, okay, well, John Piper, you know, said, so I guess I'll stop. He lost to John Piper, but he gained Oprah. 
Yeah, ex- exactly. And so what happened is if it was pushed out of the evangelical church, it largely started to grow online. See, the, I don't think a lot of people realized the power that social media would, that that big powerhouse social media would become. So the movement continued to grow. More and more and more people continued to find each other. And that's what Brian McLaren said in this blog post in 2012. He said, we're just not using the word emergent anymore. We're the same people. We have the same ideology. We're the, we're the same group, but we just use the word. And this was 2012. So he said, you know, we might call it a new kind of Christianity. We might call it progressive Christianity. We might call it missional Christianity. Well, from now, from the 2021 perspective, we can look back and say, well, it's the term progressive that won the day. That is now how they all identify themselves. And so, yeah, the emergent movement did not fizzle out at all. Uh, It just continued to grow. It just sort of re-emerged really on the grassroots level. It it re-infiltrated the evangelical church largely through the vehicle of the internet. And so that's why I think, like I look at evangelical churches, so many people are having such a hard time finding a solid church because of how much that progressive ideology has made its way in. I mean, through Facebook pages and community groups on, on social media. And so you have 50% of a congregation who's listening to Jen Hatmaker and and Rachel Hollis every morning and then going to their conservative church on Sunday. And the pastor may have never heard of Jen Hatmaker, but that's who's discipling a lot of the women in his church. And so it it sort of has come in more in a grassroots way, but it's like fully integrated. And that's what's what's so difficult about it because it's just, it's so well hidden in so many cases and it's kind of subtle. So it's hard for people to see, I think, sometimes. Mm. Appreciate that, and that's um, you know as as you've shared a little bit of your story and and how you've you've gotten to this point, and uh, you know we're we're going to talk more about some of these issues of progressive Christianity as we continue through. But I did did want to just take a moment and just ask what's what's your church experience like right now? Well, I go to um, a, a small Southern Baptist church, in kind of where where we live, and. You know, I know the SBC. We've got a lot of lot of battles going on right now. So, um, but my my little church is really solid. But I'm telling you, I mean, after my experiences, it's like I'm I've got my guard up so strong, you know, because it's just like I, I I've seen time and time and time again how really earnest, uh, Jesus-loving people can get taken over by some of these ideologies that come in. Uh, You know, the big one right now, the big fight in the SBC is this whole idea of critical theory and all of that. And, um, you know, I've had several conversations with my pastor. He's very aware and we've got a good leadership board. So, you know, I'm I'm in the fight, I guess, in the SBC. But it's so funny because when I left the progressive church, I ended up at a, at a different church and we had to leave that church due to some theological things. And so then I thought, well, you know, I knew nothing about Southern Baptist. I grew up charismatic. So I was like, Southern Baptist, like that's got to be like the great place to be because that's the, you know, and I didn't realize like we're having a lot of problems over there too. So, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, my my church, my church experience is great. My pastor's a great Bible teacher, Bible focused. And so I'm really thankful to have a place where my kids can learn the actual gospel as they, when they yeah. go to Sunday school. 
Well, you mentioned having having a guard and part of, you know, having your guard up just in daily Christian living is putting first things first and having a correct understanding of what is most important in the world of doctrine. And you talked about this in your book, Another Gospel, which I left at home. I didn't bring it to my office. I, I don't was gonna, have one here to hold uh, up. I, I was going to hold it up with my little uh, <laughs> post-it thingies. But um, in that book, you said how misunderstanding levels of importance within Christian doctrine kind mm. of leads right into progressive or liberal or heretical thinking. And in your life, you talked about how you didn't really have that framework as you were, um, you know, growing up in, in your faith tradition. How do you go about now explaining these different levels of importance to those who are perhaps caught up in thinking that either everything's important or nothing right. is important. Right, because in the progressive church, all doctrines are essentially at the same level. So the atonement and the resurrection, it's it it's not it's not any more important or any less important than how we baptize people or, you know, what we might think about which gifts have continued. It's like there's there's very much it's all on the same level. And all of it probably has less importance than we would probably think. And I, I would just say one thing about growing up. So I did not grow up with good hermeneutics. I didn't grow up with learning systematic theology. Never even heard that phrase till I was an adult. But the one thing that my parents did do was they actually did distinguish the core gospel very well versus things we could agree to disagree on. So, um, you know, there, there was... I was very clear on what the actual gospel was and then what a secondary issue might be. And so I'm, I'm very thankful that my parents did. And I think that's why when I was in the class, I would be less disturbed when they were having discussions about maybe what I might consider a second tier issue, not unimportant, but, uh, you know, second, maybe a second tier issue. But when they're going after the atonement, I'm, I'm like, what, what, no, 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 wait, what, <laughs> you know, we can't throw out the atonement. And so, um, so yeah, I think that's hugely important, especially, uh, when we listen to some of these deconstruction stories, very often people grew up in the, in an environment where it was like that. Everything was sort of put on the same level level. They were told that, you know, other people, Christians from other denominations that might have a different view on on something were were not real Christians. They weren't really saved or they're not, you know, really, you know, they don't really get it. And so then I think without that framework of being able to say, okay, look, there are some things we cannot agree to disagree on and still call ourselves brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, and then, you know, to be able to have some of those discussions. So the whole thing gets thrown out or just like up for grabs, every doctrine's up for grabs. You can believe the resurrection or you can not believe the resurrection in the progressive church. That's not going to cause any disunity between progressive Christians. Whereas we would say, well, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. If you're denying the resurrection of Jesus, you're, you're not a Christian, you know, Christian believes Jesus was raised from the dead, whereas that would be viewed as kind of intolerant and and sort of bigoted in the progressive church. Yeah, the understanding of what is primary and what is of first importance is so helpful in apologetics because you either end up fighting over every little thing yes. <laughs> or you, you end up fighting for nothing. And um, right. if we if we don't have that balance, then our whole apologetics approach um, is changed and it's changed for the worse. So uh, it's good that you had that, at least that foundation growing up. And it sounds like 
even when you were uh, on the road and in your band, your heart was still for, uh, or was even for apologetics then, uh, though it's obviously the understanding isn't as robust as it is now. Yes. Um, I cringe at some of our old lyrics, I have to be honest. (laughs) Like, we had some good ones. We had some really good ones, but I actually have talked to the girls since then, and we all kind of have some songs we think back theologically and just go, oh, you know. So sorry about that one. <laughs> yeah, that's all of us. Uh, you know, Ken and I are preachers, so how do you think we feel? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You had mentioned uh, the deconstruction stories that are seeming to be gaining in popularity these days as people are continuing to, to walk away from Christianity and then they feel compelled to share their whole story for everyone. And it, those stories end up gaining a significant audience as people are you know, sharing their stories and, and reading them. Why do you think these stories are are so compelling for people, and they, they why do they draw a crowd? That's a great question because I think one of the main questions committed Christians have is when somebody comes out and says, "Okay, I've I'm walking away from the faith." Why don't they just kind of go away quietly? Why do they feel the need to make this big announcement to even try to draw other people into their deconstruction experience? And I think what we have to understand is that foundational to deconstruction and foundational to progressive Christianity is the worldview of relativism. So it's it's not so much that people are saying, okay, I've, I've left my faith and, you know, sorry, I just, I don't think it's true anymore. And, you know, I'm going to go try to figure my life out or something. It's because they've actually bought into this worldview that relative, like this postmodern idea of your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. They've bought into the idea that that is the right worldview. And if that's the right worldview, then it would be good for you to encourage people to find their own truth, to reject the truth constructs they've been given, because in that view, you don't have any access to objective truth about God or reality. You just have this construct you've been given, and it might make sense to you, and that's great. But let's deconstruct that construct you've been given because that's actually a virtue. It's actually viewed as a good thing to deconstruct whatever view of reality you were handed down because they've accepted this this view of relativism as being the right worldview. So if that's right, and really none of us have access to objective truth, then it would make sense to say, well, it would be good to live in this agnostic state of, I don't know, I'm always learning, I'm always questioning, I'm always trying to see what you've figured out or what you might have have to add to the conversation or how can we you know live together in in harmony and and find our truths together so so it's 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 really based on a very actually dogmatic worldview that is based this i mean it gets a little crazy but relativism is objective if you if your belief about the world is that you can't know truth well that's an objective truth that you can't know truth and so it's equally Sounds as like dogmatic you've got a foot in presuppositional apologetics maybe well i i actually don't i'm actually an evidentialist but the right. precepts make make a lot of sense on certain things but i yeah i i just it's it's a worldview issue yeah. for sure, you know. Yeah, it absolutely is, and and we do well to call people out on that when they pretend as though uh, they're not living in an objective reality, uh, and they they use the objective reality uh, against us. Um, it's it's worth it to call them out on that, and and I do wonder 
as believers who have an appropriate understanding, a biblical theology, um, an appropriate understanding of God's word and the gospel and what's primary and what's secondary and what's doubtful, as we come across these deconstruction stories and we're interacting with perhaps those who would classify themselves as liberal or progressive, have you found the right balance as we deal with the tension of giving them space and hearing them out, but also the need to call them to repentance? Uh, where's the balance on all of that? Uh, yeah. Because obviously in, in their world, it's also a virtue to just let people work things out mm-hmm. and then just leave it at that. Well, on the one hand, we want to let people work it out, but we don't want to leave it at that. How have you concluded uh, our approach as Christians in that regard? Yeah, boy, what a tough question. It is so hard to have meaningful discussions because you're operating from such different worldviews. And so what I tell people is if there's a family member or a friend who is being kind of swayed, like they're kind of confused, uh, that's a really good time to start asking some really well-placed questions like, okay, well, here's a perfect, I, I think this is a great question to ask progressive Christians. And I've actually had some success with this sort of tactic where you might ask them, well, so you, you call yourself a Christian. What does that mean? Does that mean you're a Jesus follower? And they're probably going to say yes, because they like Jesus. They, Jesus is everything that they believe is kind of good and moral and true and good in the world. They're going to put the label Jesus on. So that's kind of becomes the mascot for, for what's true and good. Um, if there is such a thing as truth. Um, but so if you ask them that, well, okay, so you're a Jesus follower, where do you get your information about Jesus? Now that's going to go one of two ways. They, they might say, well, it's something I feel in my heart. It's like this presence that's within me and it's the presence within you. And then if that's kind of the answer they give you, then you can say, well, why call it Jesus? If it's that, you know, if there's, if there's really no reason to give it the name Jesus, if it's something that you're just feeling some general sense of the divine. um, and, And, but if they want to stick with Jesus, I would push a little like, well, where are you going to get information about the Jesus of history, where are you going to get that? And they're probably going to get to the Bible then. And if you can keep asking questions, um, getting to Jesus, because they don't like Paul, I, you know, if somebody's really volatile and hostile, don't even bring up Paul. You don't need, you actually can do all this just using Jesus. And so um, now I don't, I don't want to give the impression that you hedge on truth. I'm just, we're trying to find a good way to persuade. Um, but, you know, basically if you can get to Jesus view of the old Testament scriptures, I have found that to be a really powerful uh, point that will really make them think, because if you're going to follow Jesus, you, you should probably agree with G- what Jesus thought about the Bible, right? Would you say that if Jesus said, hey, this is how you should view the Bible, if you're going to follow Jesus, you'd want to agree with him, right? They're probably going to agree with you. And then you can point out the dozens of times that Jesus quoted an Old Testament prophet or an Old Testament book and said, God said to you, or, uh, you know, he didn't just say like, you know, your holy people wrote or something like that. He's calling it the word of God, quoting Old Testament prophets. And the reason this is so powerful is that in progressive Christianity, almost universally, they don't view the Bible as the word of God, especially the Old Testament and Old Testament prophets. So if you have an Old Testament prophet claiming to speak for God in the Old Testament, in the progressive view, they're going to say, well, that person wasn't necessarily speaking for God. They were just doing their best to understand God in the time and place in which they lived. So we can kind of analyze what they thought about God at the time, but it's not necessarily God's word. Well, that's not what Jesus said it was. And so you can kind of maybe get get 
a little bit somewhere with a progressive Christian that way. But regarding calling to them to repentance, I think that, um, you know, that that's going to just be on an individual basis, you know, based on your relationship and based on what, what you think is appropriate for that situation. You know, I think there is a time to do that, to say, look, you, that's what Jesus, that was Jesus message, repent. And, and that's a good message. Um, so I, I, maybe those are just a couple of, of things to think about sure. for people. Yeah. yeah, that's good. Um, back in, back in October, you released an article on your website where you discussed five counterfeit truths of progressive Christianity. And in there you had statements such as, uh, these are some of the counterfeit truths. Uh, you are perfect just as you are. And the Bible is just an ancient travel journal and things of that nature. And as I was reading through that article, it struck me that all of these things are distortions or rejections of doctrines that we would regard as primary. And, and we've talked about some of those things, you know, the concept of primary doctrine already. And um, with our with our podcast, Do Theology, we spend a lot of time talking about the distinctions between what is primary, what is secondary, and how do we interact with things that way. And we have a whole chart about it, dotheology.com slash chart. <laughs> um, But considering how progressive Christianity, it's so opposed to so many of the key foundational truths of historic biblical Christianity, why do they find it so important to even retain the label of Christian? You may have touched on some of this already, but Mm -hmm. I think I remember hearing you perhaps in uh, another one of your podcast episodes about how you wish some of the leaders of progressive Christianity would be more honest about that, about how this really isn't Christianity. So why, why retain the title Christianity. Yeah. And that's the question. I, you know, I think we can view this if we zoom out to the gospel and kind of look at some of these core building blocks of this good news that we're proclaiming to people. And then we see that progressive Christians are essentially denying every single foundational uh, building block. Why, why still retain the name Christian? And, you know, I, I thought there was a very interesting there was a couple of write-ups and a couple of interviews, and I think even a short movie that was made by Bart Campolo, who is Tony Campolo's son. If anyone's unfamiliar, Tony Campolo is a bit, you know, he's on the progressive side of things these days, but famous evangelist. And his son, Bart, grew up and believed all of the the core doctrines of the faith. And then slowly his beliefs started being chipped away at. Uh, he had trouble with the problem of evil. Um, And so all of the doctrines, like from the resurrection to all of these things started kind of falling for him. And I think he called it, unanswered prayers was a huge one. He called it death by a thousand paper cuts. And he said, so he identifies himself as a secular humanist now. And he made the point, and I think it's a good point. He said, if you're going to reject the resurrection, if you're going to reject the atonement, um, you should just be honest and call yourself what you really are. You're not a Christian if you don't believe in those doctrines. I agree with Bart Campolo. I think he has done the intellectually honest thing to say, look, I'm not a Christian. I'm a secular humanist now. And so, you know, he works within that worldview now. And I think that's honest. Uh, I do wish that we would see more of that from 
progressive Christian leaders, but kind of like I mentioned before, they truly believe that we are the ones who've gotten the gospel wrong. And I'll give you a great example of this. It comes from Brian McLaren's book, A New Kind of Christianity. So he lays out, you know, we we all would sort of walk through the gospel over the narrative arc of the of creation and fall and our sin separating us from a holy God and uh, Jesus uh, coming to earth, living a sinless life, taking our sins upon himself, bearing the wrath of God for our sins and providing a way for us to put our trust in him and uh, be saved and reconciled to a holy God. And then everything that comes after that with his return and final judgment. And then this final destination of, for those who've put their trust in Jesus, you know, eternal being with God in, in his love and goodness forever. And, and those who rejected that gift to be separated from God eternally. And, you know, there's, there's nuances that can be made there, but if that's just the general narrative arc, that is exactly what Brian McLaren calls the Greco-Roman six-line narrative. And he says that is not the gospel. He says that is a pagan uh, importation into Christianity. He said early Christians, they were going to Plato and they were going to Aristotle and they sort of uncritically adopted some of these pagan ideas. And he gives some, ex you know, random examples from each of those philosophers, like the Demiurge and, and some of these things and says, we just built our story based on this pagan ideology, but that's not the gospel. So he's actually calling that a false gospel. And he says, we need to see the gospel as Jesus saw it. And so he points out that Paul often called it the gospel or my gospel. Jesus often referred to kingdom. He had kingdom language. He called it the gospel of the kingdom quite a bit. And he's right about that. But they weren't preaching different gospels because then if you really investigate Jesus' gospel of the kingdom, you have a lot of parables where there are closed doors on wedding feasts and people being separated into sheep and goats and goats being cast out into outer darkness with weeping and gnashing of teeth. I mean, this doesn't at all sound like what Brian McLaren's version of Jesus gospel is, which really looks a lot like the, you know, the headlines of our cultural causes of green energy reform, socioeconomic reform, tearing down structures of oppression, things like this. And in Brian McLaren's mind, that's actually the gospel. That's the Christian gospel. And so just to kind of support the point I was making before, whereas I would say, I wish they would just say, I'm not a Christian and I'd rather do these things. Um, they, but I think they truly believe that that is the Christian gospel. I know at least Brian McLaren does. Hmm. Wow. Well, between the three of us here today, we have eight children, uh, almost 10. I'm adopting and Ken's wife is pregnant. So, oh, congrats uh, to you uh, both. That's great. Um, when we consider children in all of this, that that type of teaching and all these uh, progressive ideologies that are out there, how important is this for Christian parents to be aware of regarding the theological trends that impact the churches and the effects that they might have on their children? It's very important to be aware of what your kids are going to be taught in most churches. Honestly, it's, it's really pervasive. It's everywhere. Um, I see it coming in in the most unlikely places, places you would think are completely sound and solid, but that's because there's a lot of double use of language. And so it can sneak in, uh, to, to almost anywhere. Um, so I think it's, it is very important for parents to be aware of cultural trends, but even more important is for parents to give their kids the real thing. Because, you know, there's this famous preacher story, I'm sure everybody's heard it, where I don't know if it's true or not, but, you know, the story goes that 
uh, secret service agents are trained to spot counterfeit money, not by studying the counterfeits, but by handling the real thing. So they handle real bills all day long. And that way, when a counterfeit comes across their desk, it doesn't matter where it was manufactured, who manufactured it. They spot it immediately because they know the real thing so well. And so I think the most important thing that parents can do for their children is give them the gift of biblical literacy. I'm a walking testament to that. Even though I didn't have really great hermeneutical skills or systematic theology, I knew what the Bible said. And I knew that when the pastor was taking that out of context, because, you know, there are some confusing things in the Bible, but generally speaking, it's pretty clear. If I know atheists who read the Bible and became Christians just by reading the Bible. Um, it's The clear things are clear. The gospel is yeah. clear in the Bible. In and a so, lot of ways, it's just as confusing as you want to make it. Uh, that's right. In a, in a lot of that ways. That is right. So. So, so if you give them the gift of biblical literacy and engage their questions. I, I think Brett uh, Kunkel and John Stone Street made a great point in their book, A Practical Guide to Culture. And they were, the context that they put this in had to do with talking to your kids about sex and things like that. But I like to even take it to a broader context. They said, you need to establish yourself as the expert on any given topic so that your kid's first, you know, gut reaction when they have a question is to come mm. to you, not Google. Hmm. because if you can engage yeah. and I'll, I'll even ask my kids, what's your biggest question about God today? And boy, you, you, you won't believe some of the things that they come <laughs> out with. And I think that if we can just react calmly, compliment what a great question that is, make it a really inviting environment for our kids to be able to process some of that stuff with us. Um, ask good questions to help them come to the right answer on their own. I think there's lots of skills we can, we can use to help our kids. I've already seen it with my daughter. Um, you know, she wanted to watch the movie Pocahontas Disney movie. And I, I had to decide, okay, which kind of mom am I going to be? Am I going to be the mom that bans everything? Or am I going to be the mom that yeah. says, all right, let's watch it, but we're going to talk. And so we did. We talked. I taught her what pantheism was, and I explained why they believe that the animals and the rocks and the trees all have names and souls and spirits. We talked about all of that. And what was so fun about that story is that she now recognizes pantheism everywhere. In mm. fact, we went to see Frozen 2. Again, yeah, I had to be decide, yeah. which mom am I going to be? Well, we went and saw it. I made, I, I'm not saying I made the right choice. I'm just doing my best to live in wisdom. Mm. So we went and saw it. And five minutes in, she nudges me and she goes, pantheism. And I was like, <laughs> that's like one of the best things I ever did was teach her pantheism, yeah. you know, and that way we're not afraid. And that way we're not afraid of the media. We're yeah. not afraid of it. But um, but we learn to discern. And so that's what I do with my kids. And you know, that's that's the best advice I have at this time is just to really focus on the real thing. Um, and they'll spot the counterfeits when they they come across. Uh, that's so good. Um, yeah, in many ways, it, being a parent right now just feels like such a daunting task. Oh, you know, my with, goodness. It's not, you know, you, you think, you know, I was just talking to someone the other day who has, uh, she's a foster mom and she has a foster child who's in the public school system. And we know what this child is being taught in the public school. And we know that, you know, CRT is is being taught even at yes. the young levels in the public school. And the last thing that you'd expect is to come into your church and have to be worried about you know, some form of progressive thinking being influenced yeah. in your church. And yet we do have to be aware. And, and that's, it's just such a, such a significant challenge. And yet, just like what you said, if we are so familiar with biblical truth, 
that can make all the difference right there. Yeah. Yeah. It's so good. Well, we always ask the, the same final question, uh, to each of our guests. And in a lot of ways, it's our favorite one. Uh, what, what parting encouragement do you have to the local church, uh, to the people who make up the local church as it pertains to living out their unity in Christ, Mm. developing convictions on theological matters, and at the same time, avoiding foolish controversies about less important doctrines? Mm. That's a great question. I think my biggest encouragement is, you know, this kind of can tend to be a depressing conversation, right? We're talking about all of this error that's sort of infiltrating the church and how difficult it can be to find a good church. And what do we do as parents? Our kids are growing up in this crazy world. And and I want to encourage everybody listening that just to remember that there is nothing we're being called to do that generations of Christians before us weren't called to do, and and to an even greater degree. I mean, if looking at church history, Christians uh, going through all kinds of horrible things to to maintain their faith and in for the cause of the faith. And I think that we've enjoyed a fairly easy Christianity in America, you know, over the past however long, and that might be changing. I don't know if it's going to change or not, but I would just encourage everyone to not be discouraged. We have the same call that all the generations before us have had. Every generation of Christians has had to stand against the spirit of of their age. And it might look different down through church history, but this is kind of a big part of our spirit of the age. This is the thing we have to confront. And this is going to make us unpopular in culture, especially, you know, you mentioned CRT, critical race theory. If you if you speak out against critical race theory, you are going to be called a racist. I mean, you we have to be willing to be called, you know, I think a lot of us are being are willing to be called, you know, jerk or, you know, you're a bigot or something. I mean, that that stings, but it stings extra deep to be called a racist because we believe racism is an is a great evil. And so it, you know, that that's a hard thing, but we have to be willing to stand for biblical truth. And, you know, we can't, we can't go to culture and say, like, just back on the CRT thing, we all know racism is wicked and it's evil, but a racist answer, which critical race theory is a racist answer to racism. You can't fight racism with racism. And so we have to stand for truth for the sake of the gospel and for the Imago Dei in every person who's been created. We've all been created in God's image. So we just have to stand up and not be afraid because um, we know that the most important thing is to be in right standing with God, to to be able to have a clean conscience before God and to live in repentance and live in uh, just the joy of the gospel and let the world see that joy. Because I, I do think that people are attracted to that, even if they don't understand why you have all these weird ideas. <laughs> but just to be encouraged that this is nothing new and, and we have the same Bible, we have the same word of God and we have the same Holy Spirit as Christians before us have had. Amen. Well, we do want to just encourage all of our listeners uh, to uh, take advantage of the resources that Elisa has on her website, elisachilders.com, and check out her podcast and her book as well, Another Gospel. And we are so very grateful for you joining us today, Elisa. Oh, it was so fun. Thanks, you guys. (laughs) 